You can turn to Psalm 121 if you haven't already, and as you're doing that, we will begin with some prayer. Dear God, we you've given us eyes to look and in a hearts that long for something else, God, and we just in this time in, in in this half hour, God, in this time of worship, we pray that you would draw our eyes to you, that we would look to you, God, that all of our questions, all of our longings, all our wants, our desires would come and be satisfied and fulfilled in you and in you alone, God. Until we see you face to face, we only know you through your word. And so we come and we prostrate our, our lives before your word and we ask that your spirit would come and fill us and change us. Amen. Growing up, I was gone all the time. Far from having a a helicopter mom, I had quite the opposite, who would usher us kids out the door and say, do not come home until it's supper time. So, there was... There was much to be done. And in all of those six, eight hours, you would just go out and meander around. You could build forts, there was tractors to ride, climbing old trees, but it didn't always go as planned. When you're out riding the four-wheeler and jumping the four-wheeler, the four-wheeler doesn't always land on all four wheels. Or when you're climbing the tree and you're getting up towards the top and you're blowing in the wind and you're looking down on the telephone lines, and your branch breaks, and you go careening down, hitting every other branch along the way, and you you find yourself in a bloody mess, there's always one place you could go. And that's home to mom. And if you have a strong German mother like we had growing up, she might tell you that you're an idiot uh, as you're there. But she'll at least, she'll hold you until you're done crying and comfort you. You can go to her for help. But what do you do if your mom was never there? What do you do when you're you're all grown up and the bleeding isn't external, but it's the internal hemorrhaging and the internal anguish of your soul? Where do you turn for help and for comfort? That's what this psalm is answering for us and in our lives. It's teaching us to walk in such a way that we know that we should and we must and we can come and comfort ourselves in the Lord. The world is going to distract us and tell us to look a hundred different ways, but we know the Word of God is teaching us through this psalm to come and find your comfort in the Lord and in the Lord alone. So as we look at the text, we're going to break it up here. In verse 1, you have the question of this psalmist. Verse 2, thankfully, he gives us an answer. It works out quite well like that. And then 3 through the end, we have the argument. What, what does this comfort look like? So we have the question, where does my help come from? we got the answer. And then we have the reason or the argument why we should turn to the Lord. So with that in mind, let's go back to verse 1 here. 
The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And this is a beginning, uh, it's part of the beginning of, of the, the Psalms of Ascent. And three times a year, the faithful Jewish people, they would go wherever you were in Israel, you would make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem for your sacrifices and for your worship. And so much of your life, if you're in a, in a an agrarian society, much of your life is oriented around saving up to make these pilgrimages, getting all your work done in time so you can make these pilgrimages. Much of your life is oriented around making your way to the temple, even if you're up in the Sea of Galilee. Not just if you're in Jerusalem, but wherever you are, you're orienting your life around, you're making your way to the temple. So you would come during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the week following Passover. Um, you would also come during the, the, the festival of weeks, Shabbat, uh, which is the, the seven weeks after the beginning of the barley harvest, seven weeks in which you would go there and commemorate the giving of the law of, Mo, uh, of Moses on Mount Sinai, and also to celebrate uh, the in-gathering harvest. So it just a uh, brief side note, Pentecost, let the reader understand, festival of weeks, uh, they're celebrating the in-gathering harvest and the giving of the law, the new spirit and the in-gathering of the harvest. And they would also go there during the, the festival of booths, which is commemorating God preserving His people as they wandered for those 40 years. And you would go and you would be a part of a, a group of travelers making your way up, up to Jerusalem. Even if you're heading south, and you are heading, in terms of topography, you're heading up to Jerusalem. And so they are lifting their eyes up to the hills. And you'll notice, I was studying this with someone this week, and they made the wonderful point that it, you look at the pronouns. We don't have time to look at it much, but look at the pronouns. You're traveling in a group, and you're saying, where's my help come from? And then they begin. It's singular, the you. They almost, as a group of people, of God's people, they're singing it to each other, encouraging one another as they are. Their physical ascent is matching their spiritual ascent up to the temple. And tradition tells us that this uh, Psalm 121 is what they would sing when they make camp, when they're most vulnerable, and it's dark. And uh, they would sing this as their evening hymn, asking God to, to protect them. And looking up to their eyes to the hill, they, they ask one of the core questions of all humanity. Where does my help come from? Many times we, we ask this same question. You have young children and they, they raise their hands and they look up to their parents. And whatever they need, they cry out and they receive help. But in due time, you begin to see that your perfect parents... They too are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and they are sinful. And there's a whole a host of areas that we turn to to seek this answer. Where will my help come from? Why is everything political now? Everything is political. Your neighbor down the street gets sick and you go and talk to him, it, now that's a political discussion somehow, in some way. 
It's turned into being political. Even our retreats as society, our retreats from reality, they've become political. You can't go to a sporting event or watch it on TV without being inundated with a political message. I lift my eyes up to the hills and where does my help come from? It comes from the government. Why is everything political? Well, it's because politics is everything. It's it's so elevated that it's become a matter of life and death. Whatever, Whatever side of the aisle you're on. If you're on one side, you don't care. You'll send troops in the streets to preserve the way that it is. If you're on the other side, you go... I know government's the answer, but this is not the answer. This government, we're going to tear it down and start anew. It's so elevated to the position that it truly does become a matter of life and death. And this is becoming increasingly clear in our society. If you want to do anything great, it's done through a political means. Isn't it? So if you want to end wars, you want to reduce crime, you want to raise education, you want to solve the problem of fatherlessness, all of this happens through a political means. And we're left to think that the only way to accomplish anything is is through one party or another. And as Christians, we're we're not immune to this. I was talking to one of those another pastor. Uh, this previous week in this town, we were just talking about the spiritual condition of churches and, and the city as a whole, and we were lamenting, he lamented, that pastors in this town are more concerned about the administration to come than they are about the age to come. Whatever side of the aisle you're on, you have to admit, it's easy to get sucked into it's not only the government. Rather than lifting our eyes up the hills, we oftentimes will cast our gaze down the microscope. In the last 100, 150 years, science is no longer, uh, it's no longer a tool by which we can understand the glory of God's creation and to exercise dominion over it. Rather, it's become the great hope. Marie Curie, she was the first female Nobel Prize winner. Actually won it in two separate fields. The only female to do that in, in, um, um, in uh, physics and in chemistry as well. First professor at the University of Paris. Quite a notable lady. Devoted her whole life to science. She was driven in ways that we, we can't even comprehend. And what, what is driving her? As she writes this, nothing in life is to be feared, it is only to be understood. This is what this Madame Curie, Marie Curie writes. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from science. And now we're living in a time when these two Two spheres have become strange bedfellows of of government and science and we're seeing them all together. And so everybody is looking to them for their hope and for their deliverance. And it seems fine to many of these people. They're they're well-intentioned. 
They are. But it's governments, they rise and they fall. One government of these people's, their great hope is supplanted by another. On to be supplanted by another group of people's great hope. We look in science and will today's discoveries become tomorrow's wives' tales? And it's, it's evolving, of all things. And if our hope, whatever it is, if your hope is in this world, it is only a matter of time until it is undone by something in this world. Is your hope in your spouse? Is your hope in, in having children? Is your hope in progressing in your career? It's all, it's good. These are fine things, but these are not your hope. This is not what you can hang your soul upon. No, no. So in answering this question, born out of brokenness, we must lift our eyes and seek help that comes from above. And so he asked himself, where does my help come from? And thankfully, we're looking at verse 2. He answers it. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And we've all been in these places of absolute desperation. For the psalmist, it was as they traveled uh, they made, you make the turn around the, the city of Jericho and you begin winding up this road about 20 miles long, this road filled with bandits. And they are looking up there and looking for God to deliver them. Maybe it's cancer has brought you to this place of desperation, of seeking help and deliverance from someone else. Regardless of whatever... The, the genesis of your problem may be, whether it's your health or your job or your, your children, whatever is bringing you to long and to cry out with this question, where is my help going to come from? The answer is always the same. What am, our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What, what a mercy we have. Brothers and sisters, what a mercy we have that our help comes from God. Heaven and earth, they're at His disposal. Therefore, we can, we can be joyful that we have this infinite helper who will come and help us. You, you'll notice the, the introduction here of this, this cosmic language. It's, it's like He's pulling it right out, of, right out of Genesis 1, bringing us back there to see how God has preserved His people from all of that way through. You see this in elsewhere in the Psalms. In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands firm. By your appointment they stand until this day for all things. All things are your servants. So if He has made the stars that we sleep under and if He has made the earth that we sleep upon, can He not come to your aid? Can He not come and deliver you? Everything is under His dominion. Every germ, every, every cancer cell that seems to be spreading, every fractured relationship, 
every missed opportunity, every night that you spend alone wishing you, you had your wedding today. God would rather destroy, one of the commentary writes, uh, God would rather destroy heaven and earth than permit His people to be destroyed. And the hills, they will fall before God fails His people. This is glorious. And this is beautiful, my friends. It's, 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 it's transcendent, it's, it's above all, but it's eminent because He's right here. But it's oftentimes, it's the last place we look. We're, so why, why don't we turn to Him? Well, I've, I've tried it in the past. I prayed and prayed and prayed. But my mom still passed away. It, it seems... It seems impractical, right? We, so we, we like tangible things. We're physical people. We like tangible things. That's what draws us to politics or draws us into science. We like these tangible results. Right? There may be an hour why you don't turn to God in your time of need, but let me tell you why you should. Look at verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep, will neither slumber, nor sleep. So as you're you're walking on the along the edge, you're ascending up the hills, you know that your feet will not be moved. He will sustain you. He will hold you. There going to be a time that we were um living in Nepal for a little while, and myself and two other friends. We uh, had an afternoon off of teaching, so we went outside of the village, found a hill, and started climbing up. And you you make your way up this this side of this, they call it a hill, I don't know what you call it here, but uh, it's, it's like this. And you make your way up, and then you begin looking down, you realize you can't go down the way that you just came up. And you have about two inches, you don't even climbing gear, you just... You're a poor missionary, you just have old shoes that you've had for three years. And you're there on you know, the this, this side... And you begin just, you realize the only way to go is up. And you begin praying fervently. And, and God delivers you and make it up. And, um, well, there's more time. We, we made it to the top of this mountain rejoicing. Uh, but our, um, our rejoicing and our relief was momentary because we realized that at the top of this hill, at the summit, was the Maoist communist insurrectionist camp. That was trying to over, be a part of overthrowing the government. And so we made it up there, caught our breath, saw what was going on, and knew we can't go to the Himalayas that way because we'll never return. We can't go behind us because that's a drop-off. So we had to run through this insurrectionist camp and down the other side. And uh, we made it, thankfully, and, and God delivered us. But the, the God of all care and creation will care for you. As you feel as though you're precariously perched up and one false move, one wrong move, and everything will become undone, 
it's not you that's holding you. It's like you're holding a child. The child thinks they're, they're clamoring onto you, thinking that they are the ones holding themselves up. But you know, it's me. It's the parents holding you. That is God. He will not let your foot be moved. He will not slumber. Let's go back to the end of verse 3 here. Well, just read all the three. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, not just you, but all of Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. Even the most diligent of mothers, even the most diligent of mothers will fall asleep at the side of their sick child. But God will never close an eye on the condition of His people. This is our God, my friends. This is our God. There's so many other things clamoring for our attention. But this is our God. Every aim of every political ideology is trying to accomplish this. This is what they're trying to accomplish. And this is what we have in God. So not only will He not let our our feet be moved aside, He will hold our feet. He will will keep a watchful eye on us, but He will also protect us as well. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now six different times in this psalm. It's a short psalm, but six different times. It says, the Lord is your keeper. And it's the same word in Hebrew, so they're trying to repeat it. What do you think the psalmist wants us to understand out of this? It's abundantly clear. God is your keeper. God is your sustainer. He is the one that will help you. He is the one who will guard you. He is the one who will sustain you. And it is in Him and Him alone that we will find comfort and joy and true rest. He's your shade on your right hand. So he will protect you. You have a shield in your left hand, a sword in your right hand. Your right hand's your vulnerable one. He is your shade on your right hand. He will protect you from your enemies. Unless you think this is not culturally relevant, look at the exponential gun sales in our society. Where are we turning? Who's going to protect us? Well, I got to protect myself. Well, no. God is, He is the shade on your right hand. He is the one who will protect you. Not only from your enemies, but also from the elements. The, the sun, the Middle Eastern sun shall not, He will protect you from this blistering heat. And from the frigid, frigid desert nights. He is the one that will protect you. Do you see the beauty of this? As they're on their several day walk together as the people of God, singing this to one another as they're on the pilgrimage, coming into this celestial city of God, Zion, the, the glory of God up in the hill. They're encouraging one another, walking through the heat, and the frigid of the desert cold. God will protect you. God will God will protect you. He's created all things. This is your God. This is your God. 
Isn't this glorious? Isn't this delightful? He's, he's created all things. He's going to hold your feet in the midst of His glorious creation. He will keep a watchful eye on you. And He will protect you from your enemies and He will protect you from the elements. But that's, that's not it. It goes on. Verse 7. The Lord will keep, uh, keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And then I, rereading through the psalm, I go, oh, this is great, this is great. And then I get to this point and I go, come on. Really? Now you're just making it up. Like, this, this is, this is just too much. You, you say that you're gonna keep us from evil. Uh, okay. What about when the people of God are in Nigeria and the Fulani, the Islamic Fulani herdsmen come and raid their villages while they still assemble at church? And they kill the men, they rape the women, and sell the children off into slavery. Okay. Um, well, you, you say that you will keep my life, but my cancer just went from stage three to stage four. And I have three months to live. Sweet. Thanks, God. And we approach this text, and it's like we want to believe that it's true, but it, it's on, <laughs> without the right perspective, it almost seems like some, alcoholic humanistic poet you know is just writing away and there's plenty of them believe me it's just writing away and you go well that's rather ideal but is it true and so this is what brings us if we don't see this in the right way we just bring this and we read it and we go oh well that's rather idealistic i, I wish it was true it's in the bible okay it is true but i mean like don't for me not like abstractly true but true in my life my friends, this is our great folly. Is when we use our own lives to interpret the text. Rather than using our lives to interpret the, the text, whose life should we use? Christ. Exactly. The Lord will not let your foot be moved. But here is Christ carrying the cross along the Via Della Rosa through Jerusalem up to the place of His suffering. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your, your shade on your right hand. The very hand that they are piercing now. You hear the hammer pounding away. The nail pierces your skin and is driven into the cross. Okay? The Lord will keep you from all evil. The people He knows and are out there watching Him, taunting Him, saying He, he saved others, but He can't even save Himself. 
And the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night, while he was up on the cross, both in the heat of the day and during the three hours of darkness. And he who holds you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. But here is Christ crying out, My God, my God, he cries out in agony. Why have you forsaken me? The Lord, He will keep your life. Okay? When Jesus had received the Psalm of Orion, the Apostle John writes, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Now, is this Psalm true for Christ? Or not? In my mind's eye, I can see him meditating on this and rehearsing this to, to himself as he's, he's saying, the, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life as he is going and knowing the impending suffering and the death that is about to come to him. And this can only make sense. This can only be true if we change our sense of our understanding of who we are beyond this physical sense. So we're physical people. We talked about this. We're physical people. We want physical results, tangible results. And thus we, we run to them for our comfort and our help. But through the life of Christ, we see that this psalm is true. That it's absolutely true. Because death, it's never the final answer. If it weren't for Sunday morning, if the tomb, if the tomb still had the body in it, the psalm would be nothing more than a fable. It would be nothing more than an idealistic dream that people could rehearse to themselves, but it's not actually true. But this is our great hope, my friends. Through Christ, do you not see the hope in this? Do you not see that this is true, not just abstractly, but in your life, this is true through Christ and through Christ alone. He who humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Wow, it was this Christ that was raised from the dead and seated at his, and, and God seated him at the right hand and heavenly places far above all dominion and power. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Ah, the Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen, my friends, that is true through Christ. Delight in this. Through Christ. It's not just the psalmist to you. No. Through Christ, this is true. This is your hope. Your only hope is through the life of Christ. Alright, we're long on time here. What do we do? Okay. We turn to the Lord for our help and for our comfort. How do we do that? Three things very, very briefly. One, we see the truthfulness of this verses. Not again, not through our own life, but through the life of Christ. We, we must 
fight this desire to read the text just through our own experiences, through our own eyes. That's why people reject it all the time. Read it through the faithful life of Christ. And see, and know that His death is your death. His resurrection is now your resurrection. Him going back and being seated at the right hand of God the Father. Oh, that's what will happen to His people. So we, the, the veracity of, the, of these verses is not true just through our eyes, but through the life of Christ. Alright, one, we see that it is true. This is how we come to God from help. Number two, identify the places, the other places you turn for help. Do you think your foot will not be moved because Mother Mayo will take care of you as she, as she gathers in her little hens and takes care of them, broods over them? Is that your hope? Do you think your foot won't be moved if this city turns into Portland? Which it might. And the rioting comes here. We see an increase, I see it in my own life, an increase of anxiety is permeating as we talk with you guys. We see it all the time. This increase of anxiety, and I can speak from my own life, the degree to which my anxiety rises as I realize the inverse is true and that I am not trusting God. I am not turning to God. I'm not placing myself in Him knowing my only hope is in You, God. Comfort me. Whatever might be going on, whether it's true or not, God, I'm in anguish right now. Comfort me, God. So when we see it's true, it's true not through my eyes and my experiences, but through the life of Christ. Number two, we identify the other things that we turn to for help and we push them away. Number three, what do we do? We fall into the arms of God. He is trustworthy. He is motivated by love. And He is absolutely faithful to, from his, to His people. So when you're in your hours of desperation, brothers and sisters, when you're in your hours of desperation, when you're lifting your eyes up to the hills and saying, where does my help come from? No, it's only one place. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. Let us pray. God, thank You for Your Son and how we can find ourselves in Him, God, and we know that these promises are true through Him and we can... Now we are able to place all of our lives in You and find our comfort in You and our hope in You, God. We just ask that You would work it deeply, deeply, God into our souls as we're tempted to find distractions or as we're tempted to look other places, God, fix our eyes upon You and You alone for our joy and our comfort. For we know that You are our help. Amen.